Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. We're in Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 14. We're going to take Jesus up now from his baptism up to Galilee. Now, before I get started on this, I've got to say there's a lot of harmony problems. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the book of John that we're not going to talk about here. Let me quote from Robertson, A.T. Robertson, the great harmonist who has probably the most popular or one of the most popular traditional harmonies. He calls this the beginning of the great Galilean ministry. He says it's probably 27 to the spring of 29, although he says the dates are impossible to calculate perfectly, but there's so much material there that he figures at least a year, maybe a year and a half. There's a great deal of detail in Mark, which we'll be going through. Luke gives a condensed version, so we'll just pop over there every now and then. Matthew, which I've already gone through in great detail, is chiefly topical, so that means chronology is difficult using Matthew. And the massive material in Mark makes the grouping difficult. However, you can see some progress in the history here that Jesus is, you can see Jesus' progressive self-manifestation, you can see the progressive training of the Twelve, and you can see the increasing hostility of the Jewish intellectual classes, and we'll point that out as we go through. Now let me say something in general about harmonies. Harmonies are works of art. They're not works of science. Well, I should say that. There's a lot, of, a lot of science that goes into it, but there's just not enough evidence to know for sure what happens where, and so harmonists disagree with one another. I'm going to use Robertson because his is as good as any. For example, there's a whole bunch of material between Luke chapter, end of chapter 17 through, I don't know, I forgot, about eight, about 10 chapters, I believe it is, in Luke that people don't know exactly where to put it. Big controversy on that. Robertson parallels that with some stuff in John. Well, we're going to, when we get to John, I'll pick up all that we leave out as we go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels but i just want to say that we can't know for sure a lot of times when something happened i wish that the gospel writers had given a date month and down to the day it would, would suit me fine but that's not the way they did it so we're going to have to just do the best we can so let's start with mark 1:14. after john was arrested jesus went to galilee preaching the good news of god now why was john that's john the baptist why was he arrested well i'm going to just tell you the story real quick herod Antipas, who was ruling Galilee now, as well as Perea, east of the Jordan River, and the and Galilee, he was married to the wife of King Aretas, a Nabataean king, if I recall correctly, and he decided to put her away so that he could marry his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Now, John, now Herod Antipas had two half-brothers, both of whom were named Herod the Philip, which makes it kind of complicated. Herod the Philip I, Herod Philip II. Well, Herod Philip I was married to Herodias. Herod Antipas talked Herodias into leaving Herod the Philip I and marrying him. That's to make a long story short. Well, Herod Herodias had a daughter by Herod Philip I named Salome, who ironically ended up marrying Herod, Herod Philip II, although that doesn't matter in the story. Salome did a sexy dance at a party, at a banquet that Herod Antipas was doing, and... And Salome asked, at the urging of Herodias, to ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And so Herod Antipas killed him, not without some reluctance, because he liked to listen to Herod's talk. Excuse me, he liked to hear John the Baptist talk. And John the Baptist, of course, had been preaching fire and damna- hell, fire and damnation at him, saying, you ought not to be married to your brother or sister. You have committed incest according to the Levitical law. So that's the background there. John was arrested. Jesus heard this because we know we go over to, to Matthew 4:12. Now, when he heard that John was delivered up, so Jesus knew what had happened, he withdrew into Galilee. 
Luke adds an interesting detail, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. He didn't just slink away. Why was he returning in the power of the Spirit? Because he had been baptized in the Holy Spirit at the River Jordan. And again, that's a great application. If you want to start your ministry, you better get baptized in the Holy Spirit first. However you account for that theologically, you better sure that it gets done, whether you speak in tongues or whether you don't speak in tongues. Now let me read the parallel passage in Luke just for a little bit of detail here. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee. I've already read that. And a fame went out concerning him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And a lot of the miracles and teaching we're going to see now are actually in the synagogues up there in Galilee. Now, returning to Mark 1.14, where it says, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. That of God is one of those pesky Greek genitives that are translated translatable in about a hundred different ways. There are possible two meanings according to my NIV study Bible. It could be preaching the good news from God, so the good news of God is the good news from God, or it could be the good news of God, the good news about God, either the good news from God or the good news about God. It doesn't make any difference. It's the good news of God, the gospel good news of course, gospel. Here's a little historical detail for all of you who like history and travel. 25 miles south of the mouth of the Galilee River, where the at the Jordan River, where the Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea, right there on the eastern coast of the Dead Sea in present-day Jordan, is the Castle of Machaerus, which is a prison. And that's where tradition, Josephus says that John the Baptist was arrested. You can still go there. It's a tourist spot, according to Wikipedia. I've never been there. But at any rate, that's where he was arrested. Now, before we leave this verse, let's look at the reasons why Jesus went to Galilee after John got arrested. Here's some options or possible reasons why. One is to avoid Herod Antipas because if Herod had nailed John the Baptist, it's logical that Jesus would want to avoid Herod, Herod because John the Baptist was teaching about Jesus. Herod could have ruined Jesus' ministry before it got started. I think that's a logical reason, although John Gill disagrees with that. I don't know why. He could be because he wanted to call his disciples that he wanted, and they all lived, um, four or five of them at least, lived in Galilee, according to John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. There was a mixed population in Galilee, which means less strict Orthodox Jews are up there, lots of uh, uh, Gentiles up there, so there would be less religious bigotry toward, the, uh, toward Jesus and toward uh, Jews in particular, and of course Jesus was Jewish. The greater the concentration of Jews there were, there was the more opposition to Jesus there was because of the religious Jewish intellectuals who hated Jesus. Capernaum, which was on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, was centrally located for his ministry uh, north because large numbers of people passed through Capernaum on the way from the north of Israel down to Jerusalem. And so it was a strategic spot. It was also very convenient for crossing the lake because it was right on the lake. And they had boats. So there's a reason why Jesus went to Galilee at this particular time. Moving on to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we read, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. That phrase, verse 15, is a description of the good news that Jesus was preaching, as, he mentions, as Mark mentions at the end of verse 14. So here's the good news. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's a kingdom. We'll notice that the good news involves repentance and belief. Again, those two phrases, repent and believe, are often associated with our salvation in Jesus. 
You don't really see somebody saying accept Jesus in your heart the way we do it today. It's repent and believe. Now, what does repent mean? It means to make a radical change in your life, according to the NIV Study Bible, and turn your back on sin and walk away from it. Adam Clark says it's a total change in conduct. Now, this idea wasn't in the, in the mind of the Jews who were expecting the military Messiah, and so you have this constant conflict between the kingdom of God and the, the longed-for Jewish messianic kingdom. They were not the same thing. The Greek word for metanoio, for, for uh, repent is metanoio, which strictly denotes a change of mind, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Here's a quote from them. Here and wherever this word is used in connection with salvation primarily refers to that sense of sin which leads the sinner to flee from the wrath to come, to look for relief only from above and eagerly to fall in with the provided remedy. And I say that so... We don't want to just tell our converts that we're witnessing to, just believe in Jesus. That's just No, repent and believe. Tell them they need to turn their back on sin, and if they have trouble doing that, we'll ask Jesus to give them the power from the Holy Spirit to break the power of the sin in their life. But don't just tell them, well, just believe, believe, believe. I know there's a huge controversy over this, and I've got my thoughts on it, but I'm not going to get into that. But I will just say that and to avoid controversy in this, just do what the Scripture says. Ask people to repent and ask people to believe. And repent means turn your back on sin. Say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to follow the world anymore. And I believe that he can forgive me for my sins. So repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God has come near because the time is fulfilled. Well, what does fulfilled mean? Well, here's some options. It could mean the time was finished, which fixed the end of the law and the prophets. In other words, the old, old covenant era is over. Law of Moses is over. Grace and truth is here. Jesus' kingdom is here now. Could be more precisely referring to the time that was fixed for the Messiah's appearance in the world, which is according to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, the famous 70 weeks prophecy, which Jewish scholars would know. I've done a, a video, a YouTube video on the 70 weeks, and that is much too complicated to get into here. But I will tell you this, if my view is correct on that, then you can fix the time of appearance right around 26 AD, which is right around when Robertson says his ministry starts. So that's how precise it is. Of course, the 70 weeks is called the fever swamp of Old Testament scholarship or something. I read a quote because a lot of people have a, get bogged down in that with a lot of controversy. But I would just tell you that the Old Testament prophecies in Daniel told of a time when the Messianic kingdom was coming. And Jesus is saying that time is fulfilled. The old covenant, the law of Moses is over. The law of Christ is just getting ready to get started. Now notice that Mark here in chapter, in chapter 1 verse 15 says it's the kingdom of God which has come near. The kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. And I have read speculation that the reason Matthew does that, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And heaven sort of softens the idea of talking about God. The Jews didn't like to mention his name, the ineffable name of Jesus. Uh, the ineffable name of God, excuse me, of Yahweh is straight out. And so they would euphemize it a little bit and call it the kingdom of heaven. But it's the same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Now, dispensationalists used to, I don't know if they still do so, but they used to make a big difference and say this, there's two different kingdoms. No, there's not. There's one kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom is where God rules. Where does God rule? Well, he rules in heaven. He rules over the angels. But here Jesus is talking about more particularly where he rules on earth, which is in the church, which is getting ready to get established. Now we move on to Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. So this is going to be the call of the Galilean apostles. 
But before I get into verse 16, I'm going to scroll through Robertson here and tell us what has happened according to Robertson before we get to the spot in Mark. In John 4, we have the healing at Cana of the son of a courtier of Capernaum. That was at Cana on the way up. We have the first rejection rejection at Nazareth. That's when they threaten to throw him off a cliff. We can read that in Luke chapter 4. Then we get them settling down into the new home in Capernaum. This is in Matthew 4, which I've already gone over that in Matthew as they settle down in Capernaum. So now we are here in verse 16 in Mark 1. The parallel passages of Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, and Luke 5, 1 through 11, we'll look at as we go through. Reading Mark chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. As he, Jesus, was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. So here we have the calling of the first two brothers, Simon and Andrew, who were originally from Bethsaida and were living in Capernaum at this time. I'm going to get some information from Luke that's addition to this in the Luke parallel. There's a Matthew parallel too, which doesn't really add anything. First of all, we see, doesn't add anything much, we see that in Matthew 4, verse 18, it says, And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brethren, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew. It sounds like he just casually ran into him. That's an option, but it also could be because he was purposely looking for disciples, because in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 41, one of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. So it sounds like Jesus knew them from John's baptism and sought them out later in Galilee. He might have met them down in Judea when he was getting baptized. Now Simon, he saw Simon and Andrew. This, of course, is Simon Peter. He's also called Simeon in Acts verses 15 through 14. A lot of these names have to do with the way they're translated. But later, Peter, Jesus was famously, Peter was, Simon was famously later given the name Peter by Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And of course, the Aramaic for Peter is Cephas. So sometimes he's called Cephas, which I'm tempted to say is short for Bocephas, but it's not. Now, they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Now, some people have speculated that it's no accident that Jesus' Jesus's first disciples were fishermen because he was going to make them fishers of men. I don't know whether how much we can go into that, but how much we can speculate on that. But they were going to be fishers of men, and it's very interesting. These first disciples were not powerful, educated, wealthy men. Fishermen were, quote-unquote, despicable and, quote-unquote, contemptible, according to John Gill. So, Choosing people like this was better to show God's incredible power, and it is quite impressive when you think about it to think that a church now that has over a billion people in it was started by a few fishermen and Jesus. Now, Jesus could have called powerful scribes and Pharisees into his little band of disciples, but he didn't. What's well, the application point here? People do not have to be highly educated to preach. Now, they do need to learn the words of Jesus because these disciples, just because they weren't educated, didn't mean they weren't diligent and they weren't. And they, that they were stupid, it doesn't mean that, but they were not highly educated. They educated themselves in the school of the master. They listened to his disciples, asked what the, the, they listened to the parables of Jesus, asked what the parables meant. They learned by doing. They learned by being disciples as Jesus trained them. Now you notice that, at least in Matthew, it says that they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus, immediately must have shown, that shows how strong that call must have been on those two, just to leave your business, 
Leave your occupation and follow Jesus. Here's Jesus in the power of the Spirit. He called his disciples and they knew that they were following somebody special. Now, Robertson has Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 as parallel, so I'm going to read that just to get some more context. It does give a lot more information than Matthew and Mark. Luke 5, verse 1, Now it came to pass, while the multitude pressed upon him and heard the word of God, that he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes out of the boat. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answered and said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at thy word I will let down the nets. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets were breaking, and they beckoned unto their partners in the other boat that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter, when he saw it, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was amazed, and all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, and henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left all and followed him. So you see a lot more detail there. I'll go into that in detail when we get to Luke. But just to give you some background there, this fishers of men here, there was, there was an object lesson with it. He gave them an incredible, miraculous catch of fish to prove that they were going to be fishers of men. And so that leads us into Mark 1.17. Follow me, Jesus told them. I will make you fish for people. This is Simon and Andrew. He's talking here. And uh, also James and John, who were partners with Simon and Andrew in the fishing business. Luke chapter 5, verse 10, which I just read. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. And I'll assume it means the other people who were with Simon would also be fishing for people. Before we leave Mark chapter 1, verse 17, let's look at this expression, follow me. In English, we don't think about that too much, but there was a little more oomph to that word in Jewish terminology. To a Jew, this meant following a person in order to be his disciple or scholar, as Adam Clark said. So when Jesus is saying, follow me, he's saying, change your occupation, guys. You're going to be my disciple. You're going to be a rabbi scholar, a different type of rabbi scholar than you've ever seen before, and your whole life is about to change, which it did. Now, reading Mark chapter 1, verse 18, Mark says this, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's James, that's, uh, Simon and Andrew. At this point, James and John, the son of Zebedee, going to come a little bit later. Luke pushes them all together, kind of, but Mark, Matthew splits it out. So we're looking at Simon and Andrew now, and it says, Immediately they followed Jesus. Well, immediately... Shows that they walked away from the occupation without a second thought, turned their heads and walked away, which again, as I mentioned earlier, that shows the incredible power of Jesus' call. Going on to Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Mark says this, Going on a little farther, he, Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Now these two, of course, are two of the most famous disciples. John wrote the book of John and the three letters of John in the book of Revelation. Right now, he's just an ignorant poor fisherman, washing and mending his nets. James, the son of Zebedee, of course, was martyred by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. Herod Antipas killed him with a sword. And so they are famous in Christian history. They were in their boat mending their nets. They didn't realize their lives were about to change. We go to verse 20 in Mark 1. Immediately he called them. There's that Mark word 
the word that Mark likes to use so much, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, hired men means that these people were entrepreneurs. They probably owned their boats, so they might not have been as poor as other fishermen. James and John I'm talking about. Simon and Andrew might have been poorer, actually. But these guys owned their own boat. But they left that boat. They left their business to follow Jesus. Again, that shows the incredible power of Jesus' call. And just as a sidelight historical note, it is thought that the Salome that was at the cross and was also at the tomb bringing spices to on Resurrection Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' body, her name was Salome, and that was James and John's mother, the wife, probably, of Zebedee. Now we're going to take Jesus into his first teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. This is not recorded in Matthew. There is a parallel passage in Luke, which tracks pretty much Mark. We'll go to Luke when necessary if we need to pick up a detail or two. Capernaum is on the northwest. Gosh, I think earlier I said the northeast. I meant to say the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's there today. The archaeologists have found it. They found a nice synagogue in there. I think they say they think they found Peter's home. I don't remember the details, but it's worth going to if you ever want to tour to Israel. It's interesting. They, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They know where Bethlehem is. Maybe not the exact spot where Jesus was born, but they know the city. Nazareth was where Jesus grew up. That's there. You can go see it. And Capernaum is where he established his first uh, ministry headquarters at the home of Peter and Andrew. And that's there, too. I think it took him a while to find Capernaum. I think it was found, I forgot when, but it wasn't too long ago. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. Of course, this is typical. Visiting rabbis would come and teach in the synagogue. They would sit, and everybody else would listen to him. Somebody has made the point that Jesus' ministry consisted of three basic things. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, asking people to enter it and then healing people. Now, Capernaum is in Galilee, which John Gill says, quote, was a country mean and despicable, inhabited by persons poor, illiterate, vile, and wicked. It's a very populous area, John Gill says. There were 240 cities and towns besides smaller villages, according to Josephus. Jesus went there publicly and publicly taught in the synagogues. He didn't creep into private houses as like the Pharisees and later the false apostles did, according to John Gill. He went publicly to teach. Now let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. That means the people in the synagogue at Capernaum. They were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Now what does that mean as having authority? He was saying, this is where it is, ladies and gentlemen. I'm announcing to you. It's not Rabbi X said this and Rabbi Y said this and Rabbi Z he disagreed. He sort of split the middle. And I don't know what I think the answer is, but I sort of lean to Rabbi X. No, he didn't teach that way. He says, this is the way it is. This is what this is the revealed will of God. So that's the first time the people were astonished. They were astonished later at his healing. And we're going to see a demon exorcism in a minute. But the teaching first astonished them. Now, this word astonished shows up a lot in Mark. So let's look at this to show the impact that Jesus had on the people at just in the book of Mark. Mark 2.12, immediately he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This was the man healed when he was let down through the roof, a paralytic. Mark 5, verse 20, So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. That was 
the Gadarene demoniac that was healed. Mark 5:42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and they were utterly astounded, astounded, amazed, astounded. Mark 6:2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? So you see, the teaching and the miracles were the two things that amazed the crowds. Mark 6, verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. Mark 7, verse 37. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes deaf people hear, and people unable to speak, talk. Mark 10:26. So they were even more astonished saying to one another, then who can be saved? That was, that was a teaching point about the difficulty of getting saved. Mark 11, verse 18, Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Mark 15, 5, But Jesus still did not answer anything, so Pilate was amazed. Jesus was an amazing historical figure. He amazed people. He was an amazing, so these people will say, well, he was just a good teacher. <laughs> oh, no. Anybody that says that is either an ignorant fool or be a liberal or probably see both. Teachers don't do this. Teachers do not have that kind of effect on people. He, as C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, a lord. Only a lunatic would go around saying the stuff he did and doing the stuff he did that amazed people so much with so much authority. He basically claimed to be God. That's why they killed him, because they knew he was claiming to be God. People that claim to be God usually end up in an insane asylum. They don't end up being the head of a religion of over a billion people that people would die for. This idea of having authority is mentioned again in another place in Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Again, the scribes were just busy quoting other authorities. Jesus was saying, I have authority. We go down to verse 23 in Mark chapter 1. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. Of course, an unclean spirit is a demon. He cried out. That's the demon, not the man. The, man, the unclean spirit cried out. What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Us, of course, refers to the fact there was more than one demon in there. One, of them, one demon was speaking for the others, the other or the others. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Luke chapter 4, verses 33, as I said, this is, there's a parallel passage in Luke which tracks Mark pretty closely, but Luke verse chapter 4, verse 33 says, In the synagogue there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit. So the word demon is added there to show us that, the, that an unclean spirit is a demonic spirit. John Gill points out that he did not have an unclean sinful heart. He had an unclean spirit. There is a difference. You know, we're sinners. We, that's the flesh. And then we also sometimes have demons. And since both the flesh and the demons produce the same rotten fruit, sometimes it's hard to distinguish the two. I know there are people in the charismatic movement go around, they find a demon under every chair. And then there are some people in the cessationist camp who act like demons don't do a darn thing to anybody and they wouldn't cast out a demon if you paid them a million dollars because they, they don't even acknowledge that they exist hardly. And if they do acknowledge that demonic Activity exists. They are in the unpleasant position of saying, yeah, the demons can, can, can possess people, but Jesus can't cast them out. This is why I think cessationism is, a, is bunkum. The adjective unclean is used about 20 times in the Gospels to describe demons, according to Jameis, Fawcett, and Brown. Now, why did the demon say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God? The demon may have done that according to a certain occult belief that using a person's precise name gave control over him. That's my NIV study Bible says that. 
John Gill says the demon may have been trying to flatter Jesus to save himself. Oh, you holy one of God, how about let me go? Yeah, that John Gill, really, he, that guy's the most creative, imaginative guy, but he's usually wrong, in my opinion, about a lot of things because he's too creative. I think, he's, I think the NIV study Bible is probably right there is that the demon's trying to control Jesus by calling him the holy one of God. And that, by the way, is probably why Jesus constantly told the demons to shut up. He wasn't going to listen to that nonsense. The demon probably got this expression from Psalm 16, verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. Now... The demon said, have you come to destroy us? The answer was that was not yet. He just he was just casting them out. Now, their actual destruction is going to come at the great white throne judgment when they were going to be toast. They were going to be carried into the lake of fire, and that was it. But Revelation 20 says the demonic power is bound. Jesus said, I saw Satan like fall like lightning from heaven. He was destroying their power if he was not destroying their existence. They're eventually going to be completely annihilated. This illustrates a principle is that the kingdom of God progresses in a... The kingdom of God doesn't happen all at once. There's a progression involved. Our sanctification doesn't happen that way. The ending of demons doesn't happen that way. But more and more and more, Jesus' power will manifest itself, and the more, the better. Now, because the man was in the synagogue, he must have had lucid intervals, or they wouldn't have let him in there. He probably got into the synagogue. You heard Jesus teaching, and this is what happens when demons hear the teaching of Jesus. They hear that name, Jesus, and they go nuts. They can't stand it. So I suspect that Jesus' presence stirred that demon up. And the question they asked Jesus, what have we to do with you? The answer to that was nothing. Jesus didn't have anything to do with demons. The demons realized the distinction between holiness, which was Jesus, and filth, which was themselves. Now, the demons called Jesus the Nazarene. Now, that was meant by the demon as a term of contempt, according to Jameson and Brown, because Nazareth was a no-account place. If you go to Nazareth today, I'm telling you, I don't want to offend anybody that lives there, but my gosh, it's still sort of a shabby-looking place. But... The people later used the term Nazarene as a term of honor. Luke 18, verse 37, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by, they told him. I think that was one of the blind guys on the side of the road. Jesus the Nazarene. If it's not honor, at least it's neutral. It's not negative. Mark 16, verse 6, don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. That's the angel speaking to the women at the tomb. So obviously Nazarene is not used in a pejorative sense there. Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This is Peter at his Pentecostal sermon saying Jesus the Nazarene. So Nazarene was not, not always a term of opprobrium. Sometimes it was just a term showing where Jesus was from, where he grew up. But the demon, he was probably trying to run Jesus down, unless he was trying to flatter Jesus, like John Gill says, in order to get Jesus to let him loose. But I don't think so. All right, well, let's see what Jesus does here in verse 25 and 26 in Mark chapter 1. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. The NIV study Bible says that be quiet literally means be muzzled. Be muzzled and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Quite an interesting synagogue meeting on that Sabbath day when you see somebody writhing around looking like an epileptic, as sometimes happens when demons get cast out of people. I've heard enough demon stories and seen enough demon stuff to to know that that doesn't surprise me in the least. The demons don't come out easily. They they fight on the way out, apparently. I don't know why, but they do. Now, although the man was convulsed as the demon came out, the demon did not hurt him. And we go to Luke chapter 4 to our parallel in Luke. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without 
hurting him at all. And that's nice. I remember one time I was in China and this young man, and I don't know if this was a demon or not. I suspect it was. Nobody ever told me, but he, we, he was just listening to us. We were, I don't know if we were teaching or just sharing, fellowshipping with some Christian church leaders in some country place. I forgot where it was. And that that young man was sitting there and all of a sudden he jumps up, runs out and lands right into a shallow well that was out there. And they all had to come get him. And he was acting demon possessed. I'm pretty sure it was because you talk about Jesus, it stirs demons up. What I remember is the demon just threw him down, threw him into the well. If it was a demon or he could have been him acting foolish, I don't know. Now, why did Jesus say, be quiet? Well, that's because he didn't want to hear the demon talk. He didn't. And this is something I had to learn. I, I One time I was involved, the first time I ever encountered somebody that was demon-possessed, I felt like I had to argue with the demon. It was quite embarrassing. Later, when I realized what had happened, there was this girl who I assumed was a Christian. I found out later she was one of these uh, fake Christians. She said she was a Christian, and that demon was saying, that demon was saying, she's mine, she's mine. And I would say, no, she's not. She belongs to Jesus of Nazareth. By the blood of Jesus, come out of her. No, she's mine. It turns out she was his because she was not saved. But nonetheless, we got that demon under control. That was quite a story. And by the way, let's go back and read this. I meant to do this. Let's read what the demon said here. And let's read it, how the demon probably sound, sounded because I've heard him speak. They're not pleasant. And I read it like, what do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? No, that's not how the demon talked. This is what he said. What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I bet you dollars to know that that's what it sounded like. Like I said, this was probably an exciting synagogue meeting that Saturday. We also know from the parallel passage in Luke that the demon threw the, the, demon threw the demoniac down on the ground. Because Luke 4.35, that verse I just read, and throwing him down before them. So the demon threw him down on the ground, made him convulse. Mark doesn't give the details. Mark chapter 1, verse 27. Then they were all amazed. There's that amazing thing again. So they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were already impressed by the authority of his teaching, and Jesus backed up the authority of his teaching with, by casting out a demon. So that's the first time they'd seen that. This time the authority had something added to it. Mark chapter 1 verse 28. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus made a big first impression in Galilee. Now the entire vicinity of Galilee, where is that? All around within Galilee or all Galilee in addition to the provinces all around Galilee. In other words, all around in Galilee or north of Galilee. And we can look at Matthew 4.23. And see this, Jesus was going all over Galilee, and the NIV has Syria, which is, of course, north of Galilee and a different, was outside of Israel. Jesus was going all over Syria, teaching in their synagogues, some people think, anyway. And here we, in Matthew 4.25, we have this, large crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, in present-day Jordan, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan, of course, is Perea, on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River all the way down from Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So there's lots of people coming to see Jesus now in Capernaum. It's 29, Mark chapter 1. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. All right, that's the end of the Saturday Sabbath meeting in the synagogue where they cast out the demoniac. So I'm going to stop it there, and we'll take up the situation in Simon and Andrew's house at Capernaum in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.